Welcome back, America. Morning glory and evening grace. That music means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week. And I am joined, as I am by most weeks, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, including an application of that fine institution, the opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, their newsletter, and a bunch of great online courses, especially about the Constitution, but also about Winston Churchill and Shakespeare. And all of our conversations, which began in 2013 about Homer and have brought us to the Constitution itself today, are all found at hughforhillsdale.com. Dr. Arne, good Friday morning to you. Thank you for joining me. Good to you, too. All right. We are back because of current events. I have to go backwards in our Constitution series to Article one, Section three, the United States Senate. And the reason I'm doing that is not surprisingly, as the Republicans seem intent upon keeping and indeed expanding their Senate majority, we have seen online and on air arguments that the Senate is non-representative and must be changed, that it's wrong for North Dakota to have two senators, et cetera. So I thought Larry Arn is the founder's key author, one of his great books on the uh, framers and what they intended. And we're going to talk about the Senate and what it is supposed to do this morning. And Article 1, Section 3 says the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Now, the choosing part has been changed by the 17th Amendment, which now reads, the Senate of the United States shall be comprised of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. That was ratified in 1913. So our original document was updated in 1913, wrongly or rightly, but we kept that. Larry Arn. We kept that two senators. Would you explain the theory and practice thereof? Uh, well, the, the original is slightly different from the current. Uh, they both have the same central principle. The original was a compromise in the, what, the biggest compromise in the, that made the Constitution come together. And uh, the compromise was, shall there be two chambers both representing just the population of the United States, or shall there be two chambers, one of them representing the states? And uh, that compromise was necessary to get the Constitution through, and in my opinion, also good. And I will tell you that James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, who were the initial enemies of the compromise, they came around to that way of thinking, too. The Constitutional Convention produced a consensus on most of the big things. And why? Well, uh, the, the thing is, they were looking out already upon a continent, and they didn't know how big it was yet. They, they didn't find that out for almost 20 years. Uh, actually, yeah, yeah, almost 20 years. Lewis and Clark, yeah. Lewis and Clark, right. So somebody came back, you know, it was a big day when Lewis and Clark got back. Tell me about it's a big, They said it's a big country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what is this thing, you know? And, uh, but they were keenly interested in the thing, right? So George Washington's army was called the Continental Army. And then the question is, and they also very much believed, and this is in the arguments of the Federalist Papers, more than the Anti-Federalists, but it's in both sets of papers in various places. The argument is, you're going to have to have a big country. And you're going to have to have a big country for a lot of reasons, but one of them that's obvious and simple is national defense. And we don't want to build another Europe here. We don't want, you know, all that. 
you know, borders, neighbors, wars, constant intrigue. And so they were interested in extending the sphere of the United States. And the deeper reasons are in Federalist 9. And uh, they're about how you can get better divisions of power and ultimately more excellence in government by having a wide sphere. So there, there. It's going to be a big country. Now the question then is, how do you represent it? And just think, the Senate is like a massive fact that happened in the same summer as writing the Constitution. In the Northwest Ordinance, they devise a method for the country to grow. And the method is not that uh, the new territory will ever be treated as a colony. It would not. It would be treated as a territory soon to become a state. And then there's one thing that's always a consensus in the, in the founding era and in the Constitutional Convention, and that is most things done by government will be done locally as close to the people as possible. So now, at the national level, you've got to represent a continent. And, and you know, huge, diverse changes in territory and geography and therefore the way people live. And so you want to represent that, too, and you want to represent the whole of it because the challenge is to unite a great empire of liberty. So the, the Senate is for balancing, it's for protection of local, and it's for uniting the country section by section into a whole. To stitch out of many disparate parts one quilt of liberty. Now, Larry Arn, our framers were often on horseback traveling great distances, not just during the Revolutionary War, but before and after. And back and forth to the Annapolis Convention, to the Philadelphia Convention, to the state ratifying conventions. And they were acquainted with the diversity of this great country. And this is not merely, though it is partially, a slave-owning interest versus the abolitionist interest. It is not merely that. They also recognized that there were mercantilist states like New York, and agrarian states like Georgia, and small states like Rhode Island, and vast states like Virginia, which at the time of this was literally unlimited, I believe, uh, because it, it got the land grant all the way extending as far as it could go. So what part did that recognition of the, of the deep diversity of America play in the cobbling together of the Senate? Yeah, well, they, they would not... Yeah, they did. The, the word diversity occurs in the Federalist Papers. Good point. Um, so, yeah, and just remember, people today, people have real attachments to the place where they were born and grew up. And Even Michigan. They continue to live there, although they Unbelievable. don't do as much as they used to. Even Michigan they are attached to. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, first of all, what choice have you got? Are you going to go to Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's... Uh, so it's... Uh, uh, it's... Uh, yeah, you you know, you like the football team from your state and you like the baseball team and all that, right? And that's just a reflection of something larger, you know. Yes, if, yes. If you grow up in California, if you grow up in urban California, you know, where I lived a long time and you lived a long time, then, you know, God help you, it's it's in some ways very similar to growing up in urban Boston. 
but in other ways, really different. Completely 100% different because of the freeways and the beach, because of the, the music and the restaurants, because of the, the, the fact that you have to drive these vast distances as opposed to Boston getting on the MTA, the Green Line, to go down three stops. That's right, yeah. So in L.A., you know, nothing is more than 70 miles apart. And that's <laughs> like being across the ocean. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, and that's just... And see, just remember, we, we, we forget these days, right? But we have these bodies, and they have to be somewhere. And it matters what their surroundings are like. And so the idea that you would eliminate that uh, would be ultimately to eliminate consent of the governed. So I want to go back to you, you said that Hamilton and Madison were originally opposed to the Senate. There is abroad the argument that the Senate reflects the slaveholding interest. That is profoundly wrong, but it is everywhere. Yeah, that that uh, the slaveholding interest influenced the debate, but it did not drive the debate. And and the way to understand that is, uh, you know, there was an assumption and it was very widespread, that slavery was going to pass away, and that it had to. And it did pass away in more than half the Union. And that doesn't mean there weren't exceptions to that. There were very few prominent exceptions to that. And for the South Carolina delegates, uh, for example, slaveholders, Pinckney, um, you know, they, they said things in their lives that indicated that they thought that this institution was incompatible with the Declaration of Independence. And it is. So, so they're not, you know, they're, but protecting their interest is not the same thing as protecting their slaves. Yes. One of the big holdouts was New York State. And what was its interest, right? There was slavery in New York State, soon abolished after the, after the founding. But what they had is a big old port and a big old city and a big old state, and they were powerful and important. And they, you know, they're, they're the way people made a living. And remember, that's very influential with people. The way people made a living in New York had very much to do with the fact that lots of goods going all over the country passed through that state. And they didn't want to lose authority over all that. So hold on. That. So we have the two biggest states, Virginia and New York are not looking for a legislative body that will equalize them to Georgia and Rhode Island and Vermont. Well, Vermont wasn't there. And we'll talk about why that matters on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt in one of the most important Hillsdale Dialogues I think I've ever conducted with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu, because there is a broad in the political discourse, a really dumb argument. And it, it, hard, life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. And it's really harder when you do not understand what the Senate is about. And I have seen it everywhere, Dr. Arn, that the Senate is a deeply offensive institution when, in fact, it is the, the, uh, the tendons that hold the country together. And we were talking about why New York didn't want a Senate and why Virginia didn't want a Senate. But we had to have a Senate in order to have a republic. Please continue. Well, in New York and, and Virginia uh, and, and uh, Massachusetts, big, big, powerful states, they were very reluctant about a strong central government in general, right? And then, and then the Senate protecting the little states, that was, you know, that, of course they didn't want that. And they, you know, and it, it, before you emphasize that interest drove all of these discussions too much, 
there's a way that they came together for ratification that disproves that, and I'll mention that in a minute. But of course, right now, you know, they're trying to they're trying to unite the country, and they and that just that's a because you have to think back to the fact that this had never been done before. Nobody had ever built a country like this. Just just start out with the basic principle in which it's born, and then extend that to the consent of the governed made necessary by that principle, this is the first thing in the world, in human history, to undertake that. So, so, they, uh, they, uh, so they have to, you know, they're going to figure out a way to do it. And, you know, if you think now, you know, that big countries are the great rule, you know, but the truth is, they aren't, right? The European Union is an attempt to unite the European continent, and it's fallen apart, Right. And China has got intermittent uh, disassemblies of itself, right? And the Russian Federation, you know, is strained at the corners, right? And so, and, and yet these big, powerful countries have a better uh, means of defending themselves than the small, weak countries, you know. If you want to keep your independence for sure and certain for the rest of time, you don't really want to be Belgium, because... They've managed to survive, but it took some really big countries getting on their side to help that happen. Yep. So how do you hold them together, right? And this is, you know, this is the American experiment, right? And remember, this experiment was conducted on a new continent, right? Never been anything like it. Didn't know how big it was. Didn't know anything much about it, really. And so they, so they, uh, th- their idea was local things will be governed cheaply by local things, and then the Senate becomes a protection in the national thing of the prerogatives of the local things. And that, that device is a powerful, um, it's a powerful uh, protector. You know, I think you need, to, you need to explain that again. It becomes a powerful national interest in the protection of local interests. Would you expand yeah. on that? Well, it was better when the Senate was impo- uh, uh, was appointed by state legislatures, although I confess that the, the, the Senate was often not very important in that time. Because, first of all, there wasn't this whacking big federal government with the ability to reach into every town. I mean, there's a federal institution, installation basically in every town. And they, do, they don't just do the post office anymore. Now there's, you know... Local and private things of all kinds that uh, that uh, that are that are influenced by this federal government, and so that that wasn't possible when the Senate was chosen by the state legislatures. And I would go nope. back to that, although I think there's little prospect of it because I think that would be a really good. Uh, um, yeah, we're not gonna. I would. I, we're not gonna. Reopen the 17th Amendment as a practical matter. I'm against the convention of the states as a matter as well. But when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the glory of the Senate and this current eruption of attacks upon it as an institution, not on any particular decision. The decision to confirm Brett Kavanaugh is a great and good decision, but it launched, it triggered on the left a madcap rush to denounce the Senate. And we stand here, as we always do every Friday at this hour with Dr. Larry Arn in the Hilltail Dialogue, reminding people there were framers once and they were people of genius. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com studio. 
It is a Hillsdale dialogue for the ages. Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, is my guest. He's the author of The Founder's Key. He is an expert in the framing and therefore in the institutions of the founding of the United States, including the United States Senate, which has come under vigorous, sustained assault from the left in the aftermath of the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh and in the apparent trending of the election towards Mitch McConnell's Republican Party in places like North Dakota, where Heidi Heitkamp has collapsed, and it appears that Kevin Kramer is going to win in places like Montana, where John Tester is under struggle and Matt Rosendale is surging in places like Missouri, where Josh Hawley has overtaken Claire McCaskill. Now, they don't mind much. They can't talk about Florida, where Rick Scott is surging, or Arizona, where Martha McSally is surging, but they like to focus on North Dakota and Montana. In fact, Dr. Larry Aaron, let me let me give you an example from two days ago in GQ magazine, that noted um, a journal of political science. GQ magazine has an article, The Case for Abolishing the Senate by one Jay Willis, the subhead of which is the upper chamber has become far more undemocratic than the Constitution's framers could ever imagine. What would American government look like without it? And I read you a paragraph from this same article. The Senate's transformation into a funhouse mirror version of the House is a quiet emergency for democracy because its members are still allocated, allocated equally among states. And since there are now a greater number of sparsely populated, mostly white, right-leaning states than there are heavily populated, racially diverse, left-leaning states. The Senate acts to preserve power for people and groups who would otherwise have failed to earn it. A voter in Wyoming, population 579,000, enjoys roughly 70 times more influence in the Senate than a voter in California, population 39.5 million, which sounds like the most unfair statistic in American politics until you realize that taxpaying U.S. citizens in Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico have no influence in the Senate at all. Uh, close quote. Dr. Arn, your response to Jay Willis. Uh, that's a brilliant that's uh, that's one of the most intense and dense pieces of nonsense that I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, here's why. Uh, first of all, that's just if you go read, there's some many wonderful passages in the Federalist. What he's calling for, by the way, is a majority faction. He's mm-hmm. saying there's a bunch of white people scattered here and there, which. Step one, because there aren't very many of them, they're not likely to dominate the political system, although they're influential in it, as they should be. Uh, And because they're there, and they get in our way, and there's more of us, right? And so what these things have a tendency to do is to turn the national national politics, not just presidential politics, congressional politics, all politics will revolve around the will of you know, half a dozen, let's say, large cities. And campaigns, you know, the, the same thing is going on with the Electoral College. It's now moved to the more fundamental point of the Senate. But they, the two debates or the two claims mean the same thing. And that is you're going you're gonna to change, uh, if you do a national popular vote, which is growing in some states, uh, if you do that, then, then what the candidates are going to do is they're all going to campaign in the cities, right? And then what about the people who live in the country? Yep. And uh, are they going to have a majority faction raised against them that, 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 you know, deprives them of their rights? It is specifically that kind of balance 
that the Senate and the Electoral College was meant to preserve. And so what all this is really is a claim, let us do what we want. There are more of us, which, by the way, I think is not true, but there are more of us, and it's illegitimate for anybody to thwart our will. But, of course, democracy is not founded in the will. It's founded in the reasonable thing that the government is supposed to protect our rights. And when our will violates that, it needs to be curbed. And so these curbs in the Constitution on the immediate dominance of the popular will, immediate, long-term, the popular will will always dominate in America. But the immediate dominance of it, or the dominance of it by any faction, is exactly why they wrote the Constitution. And I point out, it was so important. And Jay Willis, I want to acknowledge that he recognizes that even in his intemperate inveighing against the states, he recognizes that Article 5 of the Constitution says, no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Which means, in essence, you would have to amend this only with the consent of all 50 states, Larry Arn. It was that important to them. It's the only, it's not unamendable, it's only an, uh, amendable with unanimous consent. That's another uh, that's right. curious bit of stupidity that's out there, that it's unamendable. It's not unamendable, it's just they're saying, you have to consent before we take away your two senators. And he admits that. So we are, in essence, agreeing it's impossible to change the Senate. So I think that makes us look at what was the argument hidden in the peace. And the argument hidden in the peace is that the people of Wyoming, white hucks, you know, yokels that they are, have no business in the governance of America. I think that's the hidden message. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, they're, they're backward. I mean, look at, you know, Hillary Clinton's. I guess it's okay to talk bad about her on the radio. She's finished. But uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's America is a centralized, urban, sophisticated, you know, academic in the modern and corrupt sense, uh, America. And the people outside it, they're ignorant. And, you know, they really need some management because what they would do left to their own devices is deplorable. So you want to – and the whole idea – because, you know, the people who wrote the Constitution of the United States, they were pretty sophisticated people. You know, I would put their education up against Hillary Clinton, for example. And they, you know, they had every reason to, uh, you know, want their place to dominate and all of that. But, what they, they, I, but that would never bring them together into a consensus to pass the Constitution or, for that matter, to make the revolution. They had to find some principle that would be good for everybody. In and you know when I and in practice, when I have been reading this week, uh, Stanley McChrystal, the general of the army who was so successful in Afghanistan and Iraq until Rolling Stone took him out, has a new book out with a couple of co-authors called Leaders, and it begins with a reflection on what Alexander Hamilton did during the long winter in Valley Forge. You know what he did, Larry Arn? He studied Plutarch. He took copious notes on the lies, which you and I have spent many weeks on, studying Plutarch. And if you study Plutarch, you study the danger of the mob in Athens. You study what Pericles can do, what orators can do. And so the Senate is a check on the mob. It, it, it is absolutely, a, it is to ensure our liberty. But by mixing it up with race, notice talking about the white people in Wyoming. I don't talk about race except when the left provokes me to it. But they wish to make this again a racial discussion, and it isn't. 
It's about preserving individual freedoms for everyone, regardless of their race. Yeah. And see, the mob thing, you know, we get, we get mobs in America today more. It's, you know, it's a sign of the, of the intensity of the crisis that we're in. It's intensifying, and it is a crisis of the house divided, another one. And it's a sign of it that you get violence and mobs and people running. And, you know, I mean, I, somebody told me something that made me feel gloomy. said apparently there's some very large number of law professors who signed a thing saying that Brett Kavanaugh sh- shouldn't be acceptable. 2,400 law professors. Yeah. 2,400. Uh, you know, but what about that, right? I mean, aren't they supposed to be people who are trained and then train others that before you're going to, you know, believe a bad thing about anybody, you should try to prove it? Yep. And, uh, and you know, you need evidence, right? And, uh, and then you have to have, because it's funny, you know, in, in the American legal system, the bedrock of it is not judges and lawyers. It's juries. Right. Ordinary people. And they make the ultimate decision. And it is no accident. I wish to underscore this, that when the composition of the Supreme Court was up for the the people in Philadelphia to decide, they gave the president the power to nominate and the undemocratic Senate, the equally state represented Senate, the right to confirm. And the House was excluded from that process. And I think it was because, Dr. Arne, they did not want the majoritarian influence on the people who would be making the laws. That's right. That's right. And, well, you know, because remember, the whole point, you, you can't say that without also adding the point that, that ultimately it is the people in their majority who should rule. And so how do you set up a system where there is deliberation and debate and ultimately the people rule. And if, if, if and, and, you know, any people, by the way, if you, if you look at a mob anywhere in the world, what you're seeing is a bunch of human beings who are capable of good behavior. Yes. And, and, and so you need a system for them to participate in that will respond to that good behavior and not to their marching in the streets. You know, I, I read there's an article long ago, fact that happened apparently a long time ago that the Palestinian Authority, uh, when they got their government, their parliament set up, they passed a law that it was the death penalty to sell the land and land in the West Bank to a Jew. And then apparently a horde of them left the place and marched down the street with a bunch of others and arrested some people and beat them. And uh, I think they might have killed one of them, right? So, you know, the <laughs> it's a mob and you, you can't have that. And uh, that's and so this idea that it's just, you know, as Jefferson said, right, Jefferson had a way with words. He said, in all cases, the majority must rule. But for the rule to be rightful, it must be reasonable and protective of the rights of, of minorities. And that, when we come back for the final segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, is what we'll focus on. How does the majority rule, even when you have an anti-majoritarian institution like the Senate? And the answer will be they rule constitutionally through mediating institutions that are designed exactly and functioning exactly as they were designed to do. And no, it is not white privilege. No, it is not rural privilege. It's the Constitution. Doggone it. Be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. From Tampa, but first I've got to tell all of you people up Alliance Defending Freedom. We are running a campaign to raise money for them right now. They, they may want a huge victory uh, in uh, 
Atlanta this week. They got $1.2 million for the fire chief. Cochran, Chief Cochran was fired down there because he wrote a Bible study on his own time and distributed it to people who asked for it. He is a believer, and the city of Atlanta didn't like that he advocated a traditional view of human sexuality within Christian norms, and they fired him. Well, that violated his First Amendment rights. Of course it did. You have the free right to free exercise of your religion. And the Alliance Defending Freedom stepped up to defend him. Now it's time for you to step up and help out the Alliance Defending Freedom. You can call with the donation at 866-700-1060 or go to HughHewitt.com and give directly online. That's 866-700-1060 at HughHewitt.com. Don't get caught. Don't get left behind. That that fundraising campaign is underway right now. 866 866- 710-60 at the top of HughHewitt.com. Come back. Dr. Arn returns on the Hillsdale Dialogue after this. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn. We are talking about the Senate of the United States and our ongoing Hillsdale Dialogues. All things Hillsdale, collected at Hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations, including the last many about the Constitution, and soon we will go on to the Bill of Rights, but we're not. We're moving along at a, at a Larry Arn-like pace, which is deliberate. That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, We're talking about the Senate today. And in the last segment, Dr. Larry Arn, I made the statement that the Senate, that that the people must rule eventually, to which the leftist critics like uh, this fellow from GQ would respond. But the Senate prevents the majority from ruling. So I'd like you to expand on on how, in fact, the majority will work its will as it did in the 30s. It just takes some time. That's right. Well, so, you know, obviously... If there's a, if there's a public opinion, so so Madison, when he, there are two sublime places in the Federalist where Madison uh, describes what will be achieved by the Constitution, and in the fifty-first Federalist, forty-ninth, I can't remember now. Sorry, he says um, uh, uh, it is the reason alone of the people that should be placed in control of the government. Their passion should be controlled by it. Now, how do you achieve that? Well, you spread authority across the country. That's what the Senate does. But then the second thing is even bigger than that. And just think, just the whole structure of the Constitution, If you were the argument to get rid of the Senate is an argument to get rid of the whole Constitution because the House is represented from districts every two years. And the Senate is elected for six years from states, and the president is elected nationally every four years. And then a lot of the power is is lodged in the states, and they have lots of different systems, right? And that means to get a big dramatic thing done, you you have to ask the people their opinion over a series of elections. And isn't it interesting? You just gave the game away, though. Yeah. Um, it's an attack on the Constitution. Right. It's not really an attack on the Senate. It's an attack on the Constitution. The whole thing. The whole thing. And, and the, to the end of what? That's what we really got to get to. Why are people attacking the Senate in order to attack the Constitution? What is the motive, Larry Arn? What is their objective? Well, the, the attack on the Constitution started with the rise. Well, there, you know, there have been several. There was one once slavery became a big deal and people decided they loved it, under the influence, by the way, of a bunch of ideas of evolution foreign to the founding of America, they, they, then they were attacking the Constitution or supporting it. You know, abolitionists would attack the Constitution because it protects slavery. Uh, Southerners 
who wanted more Confederates, who wanted more slavery, would attack it because it doesn't give us enough protection for our slaves in the territories, right? So these things are not new. But the current one starts in the 1880s, 90s. Woodrow Wilson is a big author. And what he says is this regime of checks and balances. It's, uh, it's uh, like Newton. It's like his picture of the universe. But now we have Darwin, and we know that government is a living organism and has to change, right? So the, the progressive movement is very impatient with this because the effect, and people should understand this, right? The effect of the Constitution is to make public opinion powerful in a sustained way. In the end, even today, where the government has its mitts on more than half of the economy, right? Even today, it does matter so very much what the people think. And to sustain that and get that, that's what the Constitution does. But their idea, the progressives, Woodrow Wilson, for example, what he thinks is experts, people who know, people who can apply science to public policy, should become much more influential in the government. And that's what gives rise to this fourth branch of government, which now makes most of our laws and enforces them and, and adjudicates them in their independent, in the 150 or so independent agencies, that's, that's where all that came from. And it is, by the way, a change in the nature of sovereignty. Because sovereignty came in the, in the American Revolution according to the nature of the individual. The, you're born a person. You're not born a horse or a dog. And so you have to be, by your nature, governed only with your consent. The new way is we have power over nature now, and if we use science and knowledge, we can perfect the society, and people who have that science and that knowledge, they become a new kind of sovereign. And so, of course, the Constitution must be swept away because its specific achievement is that it keeps the people in control of the government for a long time. And that is the whole game in every attack on the Senate. And that is why today's Hillsdale Dialogue needs to travel far and wide before these elections. And hopefully we'll even get some know-nothings of constitutional intent and freedom to pay attention to it. Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, thank you. I want everyone to go to hillsdale.edu for his course on the Constitution, where you'll get a lot more of that. And if you want to get a lot more of my conversations with him and other leading lights from the Lantern of the North at his Hillsdale College, go to HughForHillsdale.com. HughForHillsdale.com and binge, listen, and learn. Especially you lefties who don't understand the Senate.